another inconvenient truth. Each year, more than 10 million children die, 98% in developing countries, and more than half die from easily preventable or treatable conditions. Hear how one physician made a difference. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and with me today to discuss how diagnosing hypoxemia in children has made a difference is Dr. Trevor Duke, an intensive care specialist at Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. Professor Duke is the director of the Center for International Child Health in the University of Melbourne's Department of Pediatrics. The center works closely with WHO and has a focus on improving child survival in developing countries. His areas of research have included respiratory infection, vaccine, preventable diseases, tuberculosis, neonatal care, just to name a few. Dr. Duke, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Sheila. I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Many physicians feel that they should or that they would like to work in developing and underserved countries, but you've devoted years of your life to doing so. How did your work take you from Melbourne, Australia, to New Guinea? Well, Papua New Guinea is only half a day's flying time away from Australia. So in 1996, I went to work there for the government, for the Ministry of Health. And I was the pediatrician in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, or one of the pediatricians in the highlands of Papua New Guinea for several years. And I've had a connection with that country ever since. What was it like for you when you first visited New Guinea? A bit of a culture shock? or I guess not really. It was almost more a culture shock when I came back, actually. Um, <laughs> Papua New Guinea shares many things with many sub-Saharan African countries and other countries in Asia in terms of resource availability and economy and health system development and disease burden. And these are important issues to grasp and to deal with, and so there's a job to be done. How did you have the resources or the funding to keep going back? Well, originally, as I said, I just worked for the Ministry of Health, the National Department of Health, and then in 2001, I came back to Melbourne and joined the Department of Pediatrics in the Centre for International Child Health. Just like most people, most academics who work in this sort of field, there's a variety of financial resources that get cobbled together to mostly on sort of shoestring budgets to do this type of work. Now, you studied the impact of a very simple O2 saturation device on healthcare and children. How did you come to target that device or have that approach? The highlands of Papua New Guinea, probably the pneumonia capital of the world. As you probably know, pneumonia is one of the most common causes of child death in the world. So there's 10 million children who die and 2 million children die of pneumonia and probably another 1 million newborns, neonates, die of pneumonia. And hypoxemia, lack of oxygen in the blood, is a common reason for death. It's the common complication that leads to death. So when I worked in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, it became clear that lack of oxygen and lack of detection of hypoxemia was a a major preventable cause of death. How did you carry out the trial? Tell us how that started and what were some of the challenges? Well, initially in 1997, we set up a better oxygen system in the hospital in which I worked, and we saw that had a dramatic effect on mortality from pneumonia and other diseases, but particularly from pneumonia. But that had only really worked in, well, we'd only seen it work in one hospital. And I guess the challenge was to see if it could work more broadly in other hospitals where perhaps there wasn't an enthusiast and where people weren't as well trained. And so in 2001, the Pediatric Society of Papua New Guinea, which is the main pediatric body, endorsed this trial and we set it up in five hospitals. It was a before and after trial, so we looked at the time before 
this system was introduced and the time after. And again, we found a dramatic reduction in mortality. So you gathered the data for a period of how long on patients before you implemented any therapy? About 48 months. It's a very long time. It is a long time, but it wasn't. One might think it's a long time to be observing without doing anything, but in reality, it took us that long to actually get any funds to actually implement the improved oxygen system. I originally had hoped and promised the hospitals that they would have the better system within a year or two, but it took somewhat longer than that. But that also had its advantages because it allowed us to really get a solid baseline of what mortality rates for pneumonia were really like in those hospitals. Was there any intervention during that time in terms of your group helping with antibiotics or contribute in any way? Because it would be very painful just to watch, but was there other interventions being carried out to help those children? Or Well, fortunately, Papua New Guinea has had a long history of standard treatment. So in Western countries now, we follow clinical guidelines all the time, but it's a little known fact that some developing countries, some poorer countries have had for decades sort of standard treatment. And Papua New Guinea is one of those, and it's had standard treatment for 30 years. And that means that at least antibiotics are provided in a standardized way. And at least there are standard criteria for admission and standard criteria for other treatments that are given. So in terms of basic standard of care, it's been relatively standardised for several decades. And that, one, enables there to be quite a stable baseline for mortality rates and also for the quality of clinical care. A big deficiency has been in oxygen. So as I said, it took some time to do that. And then how did you administer the O2 and who received it? The two reasons why I think children with pneumonia don't get oxygen. The most common method for delivering oxygen is using an oxygen cylinder, so compressed gaseous oxygen in a cylinder. And in developing countries, oxygen cylinders are very expensive to transport. And in countries that are really challenged by difficult geography like Papua New Guinea, it's very costly and logistically very difficult to transport oxygen cylinders a long way. So what we did was use oxygen concentrators They're small machines that draw in atmospheric air and extract nitrogen, and what you're left with is almost pure oxygen. And so these machines, they need a continuous power supply to to run, but they provide an inexhaustible supply of oxygen. And so we used oxygen concentrators, and for the detection of hypoxemia, we used pulse oximetry. And I think that the pulse oximetry was perhaps the key element in improving outcomes for these children. Before the use of pulse oximetry, the detection of hypoxemia was based on clinical signs alone. And in heavily pigmented children, it's very difficult to detect cyanosis, for example. So you were explaining to us about the O2 concentrators and the the SAT monitors. So tell me how you went about with the SAT monitors and how did you carry out the rest of the study? In the Garoka, which was a hospital in which I worked in the highlands of New Guinea in the late 1990s, we introduced pulse oximetry and we taught nurses how to use it in a standardized way. So for every patient that came into the ward, was admitted to the ward, they would have their pulse oximetry checked, their oxygen saturation checked. And if their saturation was below 90%, they would receive oxygen That was a method to ration a really scarce resource, which in those days, oxygen was a very scarce resource. How did you come up with the cutoff of 90? Because in the States, it would be somewhat higher. It's the rationing of what little supplies you had, correct? 
Yes, that's right. And all, all, the other reason is because the highlands of Papua New Guinea are at moderate altitude, so 1,600 to 1,800 metres. In fact, in some of the hospitals, in the early stages, before we did this trial, we had to ration oxygen only to children who had saturations of less than 85% because, one, the altitude, but two, also the very limited oxygen resources. So you were telling us about the availability of antibiotics. How do you treat pneumonia in New Guinea? Pneumonia is treated along the same lines as in PNG as, as the World Health Organization recommends, and that is for children who've got three categories of pneumonia. There's non-severe pneumonia, or at least what we call mild pneumonia in Papua New Guinea, and then moderate pneumonia, and then severe pneumonia. And non-severe pneumonia is treated with an oral antibiotic. Severe pneumonia is generally treated with penicillin, so benzoyl penicillin, intramuscular or intravenous crystalline or benzoyl penicillin. And then severe pneumonia is treated with chloramphenicol or penicillin and gentamicin. In Papua New Guinea, there isn't the luxury of being able to use a third-generation cephalosporin for pneumonia because, one, it's costly, and two, pneumonia is so common, we'd exhaust the supplies of third-generation cephalosporins very quickly if we did that. So what was the response of the other healthcare providers when you were checking the SATs, giving oxygen, and probably seeing improved survival? What was the response? It was remarkable to me in the late 1990s how quickly this technology was taken up by the nursing staff. They learned how to do it. I mean, nurses in Papua New Guinea, like in many developing countries, are the frontline health workers rather than physicians. There are a few physicians, but many nurses. And they took this up with great enthusiasm. And they knew the protocol. They knew how to monitor children. And they saw the benefit it had to survival. And they also saw pulse oximetry as being a vital sign on which you can act. So that puts it a bit different to a heart rate. If the heart rate goes up, there's not any particular action that can be taken apart from noting it. Whereas if a child's oxygen saturations go down, then there is an action that can be taken. If the saturations are okay, then there's another action that can be taken, such as reducing the oxygen or taking a child off oxygen. So it became a really vital sign that nurses could monitor regularly and use as a basis for making clinical decisions. So not only were the healthcare workers, the nurses and the doctors enthusiastic about pulse oximetry as a basic technology, but also the families were very enthusiastic about it too. Introducing oximetry into the hospitals in Papua New Guinea considerably reduced the absconding rate from hospitals. Now, how did you sustain funding for this prolonged period of time? Well, it was difficult and it was, even now, it's based on piecemeal funding from various sources. For example, there is no major funding from an organisation like the Gates Foundation or any other major donor for this type of work, but we have sought and received small amounts of funding from the World Health Organization and from other donors in the past in order to make it happen on that basis. That has some advantages in that it's really testing what can be done in reality. If there was very big grant funding available, then perhaps it wouldn't reflect what can be generalized to the whole country. And what would you say to other physicians who want to get involved in something like this where they're giving care or providing some care that is above the standard for a third world country? One shouldn't think that technology is beyond so-called third world countries, but the technology has to be appropriate and it has to be well tested and it has to be very well thought out and there has to be a system for implementing it and sustaining it. And I guess the problems with integrating technology into developing countries are well documented and they are real. And so any attempt to implement even the most basic of technology has to have all those ingredients that I mentioned before. And where can physicians listening to this go for more information if they want to get more involved? There are a variety of sources. The WHO website has some resources and the Centre for International Child Health in Melbourne, we have a website that has some resources as well. 
Thank you for being our guest today. You're very welcome, Shira. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks to Dr. Trevor Duke, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing the impact of measuring O2 sats in children in New Guinea. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. And thank you, as always, for listening.